here's, uh, here's where we're going to get started. Um, put up the first picture. How many of you guys know who this is? Raise your hand. Anyone? No? Go to the next picture. How many guys know who that is? There you go. Some, most, some of you guys know who that is. You don't. You need to learn who that is. That is Billy Graham. Okay? So, this is really interesting. When Billy Graham, you guys that might not know much about him, but there's information on that sheet of paper I just gave you. Talks about his life. Probably easily one of the most influential, if not the most influential Christian in the past hundred years. Billy Graham. He spoke to over 215 million people in more than 85, 185 countries. Just that alone, right? He came to be known as America's pastor, meeting with presidents, presidential medal of honor. He was listed on the Gallup's U.S. annual poll of most admired people 61 times, more than any other world figure. It's estimated that 3.2 million people came to personal faith decisions for Christ because of his preaching. In the summer of 1957, imagine this, Billy Graham preached nightly, every night, seven nights a week, for 16 consecutive weeks in New York's Madison Square Garden to a packed audience. He shared the lessons from Sodom and Gomorrah from the Bible, substituting New York for the names of the cities of sin. Billy Graham, one of the most influential uh, Christians in the 20th century, back in the 1940s, when he was first getting started, Billy Graham actually had a partner in his missions and in his crusades. Go back one slide. This is Charles Templeton. He was his partner in the early years. In the mid-1940s, as they were starting to get famous and the crusades were starting to grow, for Billy Graham, the crusades were when they would gather a bunch of people together and just uh, show up at a town and a bunch of people would come and listen to Billy Graham preach um, or Charles Templeton preach. Um, in the mid-1940s, Charles Templeton started having a crisis of faith that he also was working out with Billy Graham at the time. And the crisis was simple. Billy, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I just, I don't know if I can believe it. I don't know if it's fully true. I think God inspired it, but I'm not sure it's fully trustable. Completely inerrant. And that was Charles Templeton's struggle. And about 1950, they split. And Charles Templeton started a new path, a new life. And in 1995, Charles Templeton wrote his book, biography, titled, Why I Rejected the Christian Religion. Because he had basically slipped down a path and continued to slide down a path as he believed the Bible wasn't so true and more and more things that he eventually ended up to a place where first he was agnostic 
and eventually he was uh, atheist. Billy Graham, however, chose not to give that up at the time. I read his biography, and there's a point in Billy Graham's life where this was all going on, and he had real big prayer session with God. And it's, there's this story about him being out by a lake and sitting and praying and kneeling and him basically getting to a place where he said, Lord, I'm going to trust that your word, that the Bible is fully your word and that I can fully trust it. And I can count on it and I can count on everything it says. And I'm never going to question it again. And he went on from that point in, in the mid-1940s and never looked back became one of the most influential Christians in the history of, you know, modern times. The, uh, the thing that's really important to understand and what I want to make sure that I emphasize is we can never let go of the inerrancy of Scripture. We cannot let it go. You should never, ever let it go. If you need to resolve it, then you need to resolve it and never look back and go forward. For a lot of years, I've taught you know, about the Bible. And uh, how many of you guys ever remember the Bible acronym I use? B-I-B-L-E. Some of you guys have seen that. So the I in there, and I've taught this for 20 years, the I in there, I, a long time ago, I used to use the word inspired. That God's word was inspired. But I began to learn that over time, that there are a lot of people and organizations that use the word inspired to actually dumb down the inspiration of Scripture, to make it a little more palpable, meaning more, it's easier to, uh, maybe you have more wiggle room if you use the word inspired as opposed to the word inerrant. The word inerrant means without error, but the Bible is without error. The word inspired maybe has a looser definition and that people started doing that. People started, I thought you thought the word was inspired. Well, I do, but maybe here it's not really meaning that. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's what it says. Well, the Bible's inspired. It just created this wiggle room. So I don't use that word anymore, inspired. Because it's super important that we, in the end, that you guys, that we as Christians have something we can trust. Amanda mentioned things going on in the world and how hard it is. Lots of voices, lots of people saying what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's not true. Let's go to Acts 17.11. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Really something important. If you don't have it underlined, you should. Now the Jews were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In the NIV it says, to see if what Paul said was true. They received God's word, and then they examined God's word every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
And this is Paul, right? They're not going to just because, you know, just because I stand up here, just because your pastor stands up in front of you, because someone else stands up in front of you, because a lawmaker stands up in front of you, you don't, you don't believe, you can't trust until you have looked at the God's word and examined to see if what they say is true. By God's word. And here's the thing that's important. Like, you got to understand, you do trust something. You will trust something. You're going to trust something for the rest of your life to give you the answers. And it, it won't, it'll, and something will be the thing that trumps all things. And here's what it'll be it'll either be yourself, your experiences, your feelings, or your own logic. Like, here's, here's my experience or my feelings on this or my logic with this. You'll either trust that. Or you're going to trust someone else's, what they told you. Well, well, Bob told me this. I trust what he said. And this must be true because Bob told me because I believe Bob or whoever it is. So you're either going to trust yourself, your own feelings, your own logic, or you're going to trust someone else who's telling you something outside of you. Or you're going to trust God's word. One of those things that I named will trump everything in your life. Every single one of us sitting here, every single person, one of those things I just said will trump something. If Bob tells you something, but your feelings say otherwise, and this is the thing that, that is the thing you trust, then you'll say, well, Bob, I don't really believe you. Because I, I trust myself. Now, if Bob is a great authority in your life, and he tells you that, and you'll say, oh, well, even though I feel differently, I, that must be true because Bob told me so. Or the Bible told me so. Even though my feelings or my logic say differently than what the Bible says, I'm going to trust what the Bible says. Or in the end, your feelings, your logic, your experiences will trump the Bible. Does that make sense? It's going to be something. It's going to be one of those things. And then the thing is, you have to expect, if you're going to trust the Bible fully, you have to expect then, by definition of what I just said, that there will be times where the Bible will contradict your feelings, your logic, your experiences. By definition. Something will trump something. And so by definition, if you're going to trust the Bible over yourself, that means... There will be times where you will read something or someone will show you something in Scripture and you will say, wow, I just don't feel like that. I just don't. My experiences or my logic is saying otherwise. And it will contradict those things in you. By definition of what I just said, right? And at that point, the question is, who wins? Who wins? I mean, imagine if there was no Bible. No God's word. No words like that. Just imagine, right? No Bible. How could you know what's true about God or us and how God sees us? Anything. How could you know anything is true, even? Can you imagine what the world would be like if God had not given us his words to trust in? to count on, I would say, well, God is like this. And someone else would say, well, no, he's not. He's like this. 
And we would just argue, how would we resolve that of what God is like? We would just disagree. And no one would know what God is like. Only because God gave us his word, only because God himself put the the scriptures together, only because of that can you know for sure what God is like. And that can be resolved. You can't have truth without God's word. You can't know all you have after that is your feelings or your logic or your emotions, or someone else's feelings, or logic, or their thoughts, their experiences. That's all that's left. We need to trust fully in God's word. God's authority is unparalleled. The word's authority. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. I hope you guys know this scripture. Bible's authority and reliability is unparalleled. Somebody want to read 2 Timothy 3.16? Anybody got memorized? Isn't it a TMS verse? So we all have it memorized, don't we? We know that verse. Who wants to start us? And we'll all say it. I'm not helping you guys. Come on. You guys did good. I heard most of it from most of you. (laughs) All scripture is God-breathed. Right? It's from God himself. So the Bible says, this is from me. You can count on this. I have breathed it. I have said it. I have spoken it. Right? This is God himself and the Bible itself claiming its own reliability and its authority. But you don't have to just rely on God itself, God himself in the scriptures. Okay? I gave you some other things here. As far as ancient documents go, so go to the next slide. As far as, and this is the one of the papers that you have. It's just got some apologetic stuff. Let's start with the continuity quote. That's right below that graph. Okay? The Bible has incredible continuity. Over thousands and thousands of years, it was written by hundreds of different people, ranging from kings all the way down to peasants. All these different people, all these thousands of years, and yet the continuity is still miraculous, as it says here. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a period of approximately 1,500 years. These authors not only lived in a different time periods, but were also in totally different cultures, living in totally different environments over three different continents in a wide variety of occupations, yet Miraculously, all of the books of Scripture are in complete unity and agreement, revealing the nature of God, man, and his relationship to God, and how God planned to restore that relationship. Scriptures are completely in agreement 
in controversial matters such as God and the meaning of life. That alone, the fact that of the Bible itself and where it comes from is miraculous in and of itself. Go to the next slide. As far as ancient documents go, if you've not seen this slide before, there's a picture of it here on your paper. Okay? This shows you, as it compares to all the other ancient documents that are out there, that are considered the most reliable and most accurate. So like when you do your history books in school, and it talks about anything that happened a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or three thousand years ago in your history books, they get that information from these sources. Aristotle, right? You've heard of some of these guys. Caesar, Plato, you guys know some of these. Look at, these are the four things up there are the ways that they determine the reliability and accuracy of an ancient document. The four different things. When it was written, the earliest copy in existence, the time span between the first and oldest, and the number of ancient copies in existence. Look how the New Testament compares to every single one of those. And these are the most reliable ancient documents that there are. Look how the New Testament compares to that. It's not even close. I read a quote by uh, an apologetic guy, Ravi Zacharias, you guys probably heard him, where he said, the only reason, the only reason that anyone would ever doubt a thing the Bible says is because of what it says. You you could not, you cannot doubt it because of its uh, accuracy in the ancient document context. Go to the next slide. Prophecies. This is great. Unique among all books ever written, the Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail many years, sometimes centuries, before they occur. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, about 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled to the letter, no errors. The remaining 500 or so reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as the days go by. Since the probability for any one of these prophecies, having been fulfilled by chance, averages less than 1 in 10, figured very conservatively, and since the prophecies are for the most part independent of one another, the odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance, without error, is less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000 power. That, that is a 1, that's a 10, with 2,000 zeros after it. Do you guys understand the odds of that? A 10 with 2,000 zeros after it. Hugh Ross, right? Sophistus. The Bible is so reliable and accurate and authoritative. Go to the next slide. Science and archaeology have supported it, giving it all kinds of help. You guys do realize, think about this. Christianity has had opponents of Christianity for 2,000 years, right? Very powerful, wanting to find it against Christianity opponents. Do you realize all they would have to do is have one scientific thing or one archaeological dig that is not what the Bible says, that proves that the Bible is a lie, just one. But yet there has never been one. 
No archaeological dig that has ever happened. When they uncovered the walls of Jericho, they did in fact find them exactly how the Bible says that they fell down. To the archaeologists' amazement, because they had fallen in an unusual way. They continue to find things that affirm. Science has said, oh, you know what? Our DNA is all linked back to what looks like an original DNA. Well, that's... And they actually, scientists call it the mitochondrial Eve. That's what they call that. Scientists call it that. Science and archaeology continue to affirm what the Bible says. We sometimes get really too caught up and other people really want to get caught up in trying to look at the minute, the minute details of the Bible and things like that, like the punctuation is wrong here, or something, to try to discredit it. That's the only place that they can go to even try to make an argument against the authority and the reliability of the Bible. Let's go to the next slide. Turn to 2 Peter 1. So I want you guys to read this with me. I think a lot of people, you know, they, they want to look at the painting. So you got the Mona Lisa. It's one of the most beautiful paintings ever, right? It's literally the most famous painting. Would go for the most. People are like, oh my gosh, it's so perfect. It's amazing, right? It's unbelievable. And when you look at it from this picture, it looks great. It looks, you know, really well done. Very talented person drew it. But if you go like this, you take a a small thing like this, and you go up and you look at something really close like this, you're going to look at all the paint strokes. And you know, when you look at them like this, the paint strokes aren't going to look perfect to you in a painting. Does that make sense? You're going to look at it and be like, well, that brush stroke, I can see where the stroke and like the little thing, that, that looks like an imperfection. You're arguing over such minute things that doesn't change the picture or the beauty of the picture. And people do that a lot with the Bible. 2 Peter 1. Look at this. If you do not know this scripture, you need to know this scripture. This is what it says. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So this is Peter talking, right? So Peter was there. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You guys remember that quote? That's when Jesus was baptized at first. Peter was there. This is my, when we heard this, he says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He's saying what we're saying is from God. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture 
comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The men who wrote the Bible were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what he just said. God wrote the Bible. Men were just carried along. The Holy Spirit just carried them along. Anything that you look at that you think is an imperfection is not. It was there for a reason. God put it there. It's there. And it must be there for a reason. And it must be right because the Holy Spirit made this happen. You know, the, uh, when the Bible was canonized and it came together, all of the books of the Bible, that officially happened around 300, probably a little before that, around 300 AD. But it wasn't like a bunch of people sat around a room and just randomly picked the books of the Bible. The Bible itself became the Bible long before the New Testament was the word of God long before that happened. When the Testament, the New Testament was canonized in Scripture, it was, okay, here's the Bible, we might as well just canonize it now. Here's what the word of God is, we might as well just canonize these books. There was very little argument over which books should be in or not. Because there were already churches all over from the time that God started doing his mighty work after the resurrection of Christ. The churches were using the the letters and using the words of the prophets that were written to encourage each other and to learn how to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? It, It wasn't like just putting these random books together. It had already become, which is what you would think if it was God's word. There would be no mistake. It would already be showing itself to be God's word. Go to the next slide. Turn to Hebrews 4.12. The Bible's power is God-sized. Another verse that I hope that all of us are familiar with. Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's words, as expected, have incredible power to change things. And the mightiest miracle, I mean, think of, I know it's harder to imagine, but It is a mighty miracle for someone's heart to change. To to go from darkness to light, to go from power of Satan to power of God, that kind of change in someone's heart is a mighty, mighty miracle. And of course, that's one of the places where we see God's, God's power just dividing in right to your soul, right to the soul of others. 
I, uh, I remembered this uh, story, and I had forgotten it for a long time, and I, uh, how many of you guys have seen the, the latest World War II movie called Midway? Anybody seen that? How about the Ben Affleck movie a while ago called Pearl Harbor? You guys remember that? So that's a little more famous. A lot of people probably saw that one. So uh, I didn't realize this. So after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, America was shocked. And I mean, I don't know how old were you guys in 9-11? Was that? You guys were alone? What? Oh, really? Okay. I don't know. So you were only four. Okay. So that was a long time ago. All right. So you guys probably don't have a frame of reference for that. But here's what you got to understand. The bombing of Pearl Harbor was like 9-11. It shocked the country. It horrified people that an attack had been happened on American soil. And people were really upset. Especially soldiers. Right? Especially soldiers who are involved in the Pearl Harbor attack. Tragic. If you watch the Pearl Harbor movie, tragic. All of the death that came from that. Well, there was a pilot who was a part of Pearl Harbor and there. They couldn't get many planes off the ground, obviously, at that time. But as soon as Pearl Harbor was over, the United States decided, hey, we have to strike back. For Just for the morale of our soldiers and for America, we have to have a show of force and we have to bomb their country. Right? And so the problem was that was going to be really hard. To get bombers close enough to Japan, to get people there, was going to be really challenging. And so there was a specific raid called Doolittle's Raid. Okay, anybody heard of that? Doolittle's Raid. It was, if you're familiar with war at all, it was a very famous raid because it basically was considered a suicide mission. It was basically right after that happened, Pearl Harbor, and people are so angry, and there are people, there were pilots, okay, who volunteered to be a part of Doolittle's army and said, I will go, even though I probably won't come back. And we're going to go there, we're going to take bombs, and we're going to bomb Japan. And we're going to try to get back. We had, they had this plan to try to land in China. And they were just, they had kind of crossed their fingers. Maybe it'll work. Okay. But in general, they knew we're probably not coming back. This was right after because America needed this. So these soldiers volunteered, some of the angriest that there was. And there was one soldier, a part of that group. His name was Jacob. And he was typical pilot. You know, if you, they're probably like this a little bit now, but pilots had pretty carefree attitudes and pretty uh, lifestyle was pretty carefree, pretty into just having fun and doing a lot of crazy things, but also just like, yeah, sign me up for the crazy stuff, that kind of attitude about life. And he was, couldn't have been more angrier about his friends that had been killed in Pearl Harbor. So this guy, Jacob, part of the Doolittle's army, they go, they actually drop some bombs in Japan. As it was a success in that regard. What was not a success is they did not make it home. So many of them parachuted out in, the, in China. They were, just, they were thankful to even make it from Japan to the shore, like to make it to China. They made it, some made it to China. They parachuted out in China. This guy, Jacob DeShazer, was part of seven soldiers, seven Americans that were captured by the Japanese 
just in the, in the coast of China, right at the beginning of the war. So these seven guys are captured. They take them to the uh, prison camps, and as expected, they're tortured. They're treated inhumanely, barely given enough food to eat, locked in cells separately. They were tortured with the water over the face and stretching out their arms. Three of the seven were shot and killed, murdered through the torture. So, I mean, it was serious stuff. This guy Jacob is enduring all this through this. There's two years into it. There's just four of them left. Two years into it, they had been given uh, an opportunity. There were some books, a couple books that had gotten somehow into the camp. And they were given an opportunity to get some books. And one of those books happened to be a Bible. And it ended up in Jacob DeShazer's cell. And they told him when they gave it to him, you can only have this for three weeks. So for three weeks, he read the whole Bible. Read it. Just was because his mind had been so numb. At times he thought he might go crazy in, these, in this camp and how terrible it was. And so the Bible was this one thing and he just kept soaking it up and kept reading, kept reading. And the Bible itself kept speaking to him and giving him life and giving him hope and giving him joy. And when he got to Romans 10, 9 and 10, confess your sins and believe. And he said, Lord, I confess and I believe. And right there in his cell by himself, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, through God's word, converted him to Christianity. He had the book for three more weeks, continued to pour into it as much as he could, continued to memorize as much as he could. And they took the book back, and he said, then he decides I, he's going to try to change. He's a new person. And there's a story soon after that where one of the soldiers had purposely, as he was going into the cell, slammed his foot with the, the, the bar so it was caught and then locked it while his foot was still caught. And, you know, he's screaming in pain, ends up, you know, pushing enough to get his foot out, get his foot in, and he's just, you know, crying. It's just so, so painful, you know, all this torture that they're doing. And he said at that point, he had never in his life experienced the forgiveness that came over him for his captors. He'd never experienced anything like it. And the next day, he wanted to treat them differently. He wanted, so he said hi to them in Japanese. He greeted them in Japanese. And eventually, it even made his caption, his, his uh, imprisonment more bearable because he became the prisoner that the soldiers, the Japanese soldiers liked because he was engaging them, nice to them, talking to them about things of life. So 19, the end of the war comes. He is in prison the entire war. Four years later, he's finally released because uh, America bombed, uh, atomic bombed Japan, and it ended the war. So he ends up uh, going home. Three years later, after a little bit of training and after getting married, him and his wife went back to Japan as missionaries. 
And he goes there and becomes one of, has an incredible, powerful ministry in Japan. As he, and of course his story, they made tracks in Japanese, booklets in Japanese that shared his story and how he ended up being able to forgive because of Christ, because of him coming to know the Lord. And that's all because the Bible changed him. And the Bible changed Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Japanese were then converted and became to, came to know Jesus because of what God did through this guy. You know, 2 Corinthians 10.4. You got to turn there real quick. 2 Corinthians 10.4. Another verse you want to have underlined. Because this is personal. Second Corinthians 10.4 says this. I'll start at 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, which we know from other scriptures, God's word, are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, this is where the Bible is saying, look, my word God's word has divine power. The Greek word used in that verse is dunamai, where we get the, the word dynamite from. That means that God's word has the power to blow up and obliterate strongholds in your life. Anybody have struggles in here? Anybody have things that are hard for them in this life? Things that you feel like are strongholds in your life. Did you know that God gives you his words that can obliterate those strongholds? It doesn't matter what they are. That, but you know why we don't experience that? Because I could ask you, how many verses do you have memorized directly related to your struggle? How many verses do you know like that? That would battle lust. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look simply upon a woman. What, what scripture comes right to your mind? Do not worry about anything. How many scripture comes to your mind right away that relates to your struggles? And the power, the dynamite is right there to help you, to give you that power. You can look at St. Augustine's conversion. He was this crazy guy, he felt like there's no way I can ever get past my debauchery. He had, he was with women all the time. He was not married to them. He just felt like, I just can't stop myself. I can't help myself. And if you read his story, I'm not going to read it for time's sake. He's converted by God's word, by God's word alone, converts him over to Christianity and we get St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians in Christian history, because God's word, he literally heard a girl's voice while he was, he was praying, Lord, I don't know, and a girl's singing voice saying, take it up and read, take it up and read, was the, was the lyrics of the song. And he took that to mean open the Bible. 
And so he opened the Bible and the scripture that he turned to that God showed him changed him forever. No longer this man who had these strongholds of debauchery in his life. Obliterated. Look at this next page. If you can read it. God's words that you have with you, it's vital that you see. You guys remember a couple weeks ago when I was talking about the important importance of imagination? Not imagination like imagining things that aren't real, but imagination, picturing in your mind the things that are real, knowing what's really true even though you can't see it, so that it can get from your head to your heart. This has to happen with God's word. You have to get to a place where you, in your heart, are like, it is my rock. It is what I count on. It is the one thing, Acts 17, 11, that I can put a filter through everything and say, is it true or not true? What does the God say? What does the word say? Like the enchanted armor of the knight that gives him the power to defeat the dragon. The Bible is a book of magic and power and mystery. It is a collection of words, but of words that have been breathed from beyond and carry with them the weight and authority of that breath. These are words with power to penetrate and interrupt lives and to alter people for all eternity. These are words that reach in from another world and embed themselves in places more sacred and secret than the heart or mind or the psyche. The Bible is a magical book, but it is not a book of magic. Its words are not incantations. Its power is not derived from some wizard spell. It is so much more than that. It is a magical book because its words are the breathing words of God. They are read and they are spoken so that the reader and the hearer are confronted, confronted with the very voice of God. They are the words of a God who is so in love with his creatures that he has condescended to listen as an infant in order to be understood in the confines of limited human language. The Bible is a gateway to another realm a portal that seeks to transport people from this world to another into a point from this reality to a better reality, a reality that is way and truth and life. And when that portal has been opened, the power of that world is loosed into this one so that it begins to affect its influence within it. The Bible is a magical book. And as such, it can only be read by those with ears to hear and eyes to see. And the reader cannot be left the same after a genuine encounter with it. We have to see what is not seen. And that includes God's Word. It includes the Bible that's sitting in front of you. Go to the next uh, slide. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.15. Become an elite or an expert swordsman. 
There used to be this really uh, popular movie called The Mask of Zorro, but uh, it's really old, so I decided not to show the clip. Yeah, probably only Greg and I know, and very few others have seen the movie. But uh, there is an Antonio Banderas. Is he still popular? Do you even know who he is? He was the guy, the Zorro guy. But there's this great scene in the movie where he is being trained. Basically, the story is that Zorro always picks a future Zorro to continue the legacy. And so Zorro will train a new Zorro to take over his job, and it keeps getting passed down. And so there's this great scene where the old Zorro is training the new one and how to use the sword and how to become an expert in it. 2 Timothy 2, 15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. See, the problem with a lot of people who follow Christ, a lot of Christians, they do not use the word rightly. They literally want to take it like it's a hammer and they want to hit people with it. Here's what's true. Here's what's true. And people are like, you know, like, oh my gosh. That's not how God encourages us to handle the word. We should be handling the word like doctors with a scalpel. Do you know that scalpels are so sharp that if they cut you, you wouldn't even feel it? That's how sharp they can be. That's that's how we should be handling God's word. That when we're helping people, it's cutting, yes. Because that's what the word does. It cuts right to the heart. It cuts right to to the joints, the marrow, right down to the deepest part of somebody. But we should be using it rightly in a way that cuts right in there. That's what it means to be an expert with the word. Somebody who's not an expert with the word just hits people, bludgeons people with it. It does more damage at times than good. We have to become people who are experts in the word. Charles Finney, famous evangelist, was a lawyer before he became a Christian. Very famous lawyer, very well known in the town, brilliant lawyer. There's a story about Finney before he became a Christian where he's in his office. And back in those days, a lot of people would visit and try to convert you to Christianity. A guy comes to his office, knocks on the door, says, uh, I'd like to tell you about Jesus. And Finney's like, okay, come on in. And so Finney's sitting behind his desk and the guy's sitting across from his desk telling him about Jesus. And he says, well, it says this, and, and in the Bible, I think, and uh, maybe it's here, it says this about God. And Finney would ask a question, like, well, what about this? And he'd say, I, I think the Bible says this about this. And, and, it, and it, the guy did not get very far. And Finney said, stop. You need to leave. He said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. He said, look behind me. You see these volumes of law books, all these volumes of law books. You could ask me any question about anything related to the law, and I could pull the right volume off and turn to the right spot and show you what the law says. You claim that your book, one book, is in God's very words and the guide for life, and you can't show me where an answer is in that book? I don't believe you. 
you need to get out. Charles Finney, after his miraculous conversion, went on to be one of the greatest preachers in that time period. But the, the reminder for us is, do you really believe it's God's very words? Do you know it like that? Do you know it better than any law expert knows their law volumes and law books? Or is it just something that sits and collects dust? Psalm 119, 9-11. Another scripture that we should know. Turn the page. I just want to encourage you guys about the importance of memorizing scripture. Here's several quotes, and I just did a whole page, a couple quotes and some scripture on why to memorize scripture and the importance of it and the need for it. Look at Chuck Swindoll's quote, the second, uh, third one. Look at the first one, Howard Hendricks. He's a professor at Dallas. He said, if it were my decision, every student graduating from Dallas would be required to learn 1,000 verses word perfect before they graduated. How many verses do you have to learn at Moody to graduate? Any? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a crazy thought. 1,000 word perfect verses. Chuck Swindoll, the next, the skip one, the next one. I know of no other single practice in the Christian life more rewarding, practically speaking, than memorizing Scripture. No other single exercise pays greater spiritual dividends. And I can tell you guys, that's been my, that's part of my testimony of my life. My experience of lordship, my experience with Christ, my experience to where God has brought me from here to there. If I, and I used to teach this. I used to say, here's four things that I did in my life that changed my life. One of those four things was memorize scripture. That's it. All I was sharing was my experiences. I wasn't saying this is more important than that or God's word says this. I was saying in my experience, there are four things that I can point to that changed my life radically over the course of the last couple decades. One of them is without a doubt memorizing scripture. A long time ago, when I was young, we people used to actually carry pocket Bibles around. You guys know why they're called pocket Bibles? Because people actually carried them in their pockets. How weird is that? Right? And then as I grew in the faith, like having a verse pack was something I always had with me. Always have a little pack. Right? Inside it holds more little pieces of paper, little cards, and on the front it's got a verse that I'm working on and thinking about and meditating on. Always in my pocket. Always able to pull it out. What do you have? What do you do? I have a gift for all of you. I bought a hundred verse packs if you want one. They're right here. You can come up and get them afterwards. Hey, seriously, what would we be like as a community? What would our students be like if Scripture was this close to them all the time? If this was on their heart, on their mind, all the time? It will change your life. I promise. It changed my life. I have testimony from others. It changes your life. It makes sense. It's God's words. It's going to change your life. This is a box of all the Scriptures that I did. This folder right here 
something I put together a couple years uh, years ago. Literally, I did uh, this whole thing is from memory. Just me writing out scriptures that I've memorized over the years. I haven't color coded because I was using like ways to memorize them in different categories. I'm showing you this stuff to say I poured my life into this. I poured time into this. When I say God memorizing God's word changed my life, it wasn't this little side thing that I did once in a while. Or on my way to Bible study, I'm trying to remember my verse, so when I get there, I can tell the rest of my Bible study the verse. And then I forget it two hours after Bible study. I would have charts where I would re- go back and re- remind myself of the verses. I got a new one, and I'd do yesterday's, and I'd do two days ago, and I'd do three days ago, and I'd go do that for a month, because if I knew the verse 31 days in a row, it wouldn't probably go anywhere for a while. You have to give yourself to this if you're serious about it. What would we be like if we memorized scripture like that? Go to the last thing. Next uh, thing, turn to, I think it's First Thessalonians 2.13. This is the, the last thing. I want to make sure that I do not miss this. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You can fully trust this. You can fully trust this. As, a, as the, book, the magical, empowered book that God himself has written, his very words... 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us and accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You can fully trust it. It actually is God's words. I mean, I've given this illustration before, but you've got to imagine, literally, if you are lying in bed, you can't sleep one night, and it's two or three in the morning, you're tossing and turning, I can't fall asleep, and suddenly there's a light in your room, and you look up, and Jesus himself is there in your room. And he says, Rick, hey, listen, tomorrow I want you to get up at nine o'clock exactly, and I want you to take a shower, and at 9.30 I want you to leave the house And I want you to go to this grocery store, buy this thing, and then I want you to go home. Okay, Jesus. Anything else? No, just do exactly what I said. Okay. Where do you think I will be at 9 o'clock? Where do you think I will be at 9.30? Where would you be? Jesus himself showed up in your bedroom and told you. You wouldn't even blink an eye. What would it take to keep you from doing that? Could you imagine, right, I get up, it's 9 o'clock, and, you know, uh, Amy's like, oh, Rick, I really need you. It's going to have to wait, right? I love you, but this is going to have to wait because I have to do this, and at 9.30, I have to be here. I'm going to, I, I, I heard God's voice. Do you see the, the thinking that we would have if we really had that experience? If we really heard God's words 
how we would respond to that? This really is God's words. Without error, there's no mistake in here. He gave this to us, a book empowered by God, written by the Holy Spirit, to give you something to hear his voice. It really is that way. I think that's all that I... I wanted to share one last thing. Go to the next slide. This is from John Piper. Through the Bible, I have divine experiences almost every day. The very God of the universe speaks on every page into my mind and your mind. We hear his very words. And best of all, they are available to all. If you would like to hear the very same words I hear, you can. How precious is the Bible? It is the very word of God. In it, God speaks in the 21st century. This is the very voice of God. By this voice, he speaks with absolute truth and personal force. By this voice, he reveals his all-surpassing beauty. By this voice, he reveals the deepest secrets of our hearts. No voice anywhere, anytime, can reach as deep or lift as high or carry as far as the voice of God that we hear in the Bible. Turn to the last page in your paper there. Last slide. Remember this guy? The guy who decided that he didn't want to believe the Bible was fully true anymore. He went from inerrant to inspired. And then to, well, some of it's probably true. Well, I don't think any of it's true. And I think, I, I, don't, I don't think any of it's true. He got on that slippery slope. Because once you open up any part of the Bible and say, well, this part isn't true, it's no longer God's word. Any line. If you take any line from this and say, well, that's not true, you have now said, well, this is not God's words. And you are on a slippery slope that will not end until you're saying, well, I trust myself more than I trust what the Bible says. This is an interview that Charles Templeton, this guy, did with Lee Strobel, who's a Christian journalist. He found Templeton a couple years before he died. And here's the interview and how it went. Follow along with me. And how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question. So this was Lee Strobel asking the question. But I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Temple's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was... Templeton began, the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. 
What could one say about him except that this was the, a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, and, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but no, he said slowly, He's the most, he stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said with his voice beginning to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes as he turned his head and looked downward raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he left. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively, finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted. Enough of that. Don't ever go down the slippery slope. Don't ever fall that way. Believe and know from here to here God's inerrant word, His voice is ready and sitting on your lap. All the power you would need for anything in life says in, he, these are very great and precious promises. Don't ever give it up. We can never give that up. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us with no, nothing to know who you are and what, what is true. What would be true of us? What would be true of your love for us? How would we even know for sure, without a doubt, that you love us the way you do? if it were not for your word that we could totally rely on. Lord, we confess that at times your word doesn't jibe with our feelings or our thoughts or, or our logic. It doesn't make sense sometimes. How could that be? But we have to trust that it's your very words. We have to trust that you have given us your words, that your spirit guided the pens. And it's the one thing that, like the Bereans, we can examine every day to see if what people around us are saying is true. No matter who tells us what, it is the one thing. In this world of chaos, Lord, how thankful are we for your word, for the rock that we can stand on, for, for us being able to know this is true, no matter what. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this. Help us, Lord, to be people who are for real about this. That we don't let your word collect dust. That we're not just cracking open the Bible for five minutes a day to try to force ourselves to read a chapter. But that we are saturating our lives in your word. That your word is becoming at the tip of our tongues and the first thoughts that are in our minds. Oh, the power and the joy and the freedom that comes from your word being the first thing in our mind and in our thoughts. Not worry, not fear, not things the world tells us, not things our parents tell us, not things that our friends tell us, not things, anything, but your word in our minds. That our lives would be that saturated. Give us the courage and the discipline, Lord, discipline that it takes to dive deeply into meditating on your word this way. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.